Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top, Tennessee. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Not much of it in the way of an introduction this morning. We're just going to jump right into where we left off. We had left off the Apostle Paul as he was speaking to a group of people at the Temple Mount, a group of Jews. And when he had mentioned that he was going to share the gospel of Christ with the Gentiles and that all people, Jews and Gentiles, could be saved through Christ, a riot started. The violent mob kind of erupted there in the crowd. They just couldn't accept that God would reach the Gentiles the same way that he would reach the Jews and that God's salvation was available to all people, regardless of your background, regardless of your heritage, regardless of your history. And so Paul is about to be scourged to elicit a confession of starting this riot. And then he pulls this ultimate trump card saying, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And as a result of that, which we'll talk about in a moment, he was given several rights. And one of his rights was he was going to be able to present his case towards the Jewish ruling council, which was known as the Sanhedrin. And that story picks up. In Acts 23, the very first verse, as Luke records it for us, I'm going to read those first few voices, verses Excuse me, as we hear the voice of Paul, and then we'll break it apart. Chapter 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you setting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. A lot going on here in this opening little section in the book of Acts is Luke is continuing this story, continuing this ever-pushing forward motion as Paul is headed in Jerusalem and now towards Rome. Again, you may recall from last week this great story arc that Luke gives us as he is taking the gospel, Christ is taking the gospel from ground zero, the origin point there in the holy city of Jerusalem, throughout the entire known world, and at the time the entire known world was Rome. And you might also recall from our message last week that Paul had started a riot while preaching the gospel at the Temple Mount. And even though the people had gotten quiet for a moment after the Roman soldiers had arrested him, 
and he attempted a second time to preach to the people, they began rioting again. Paul is sort of gaining this rep reputation, and it happens again here, that everywhere he goes, a riot seems to start. They didn't want to hear what Paul said, even though Paul was speaking the truth. And once again, Paul claimed Roman citizenship at the end of Acts 22, and this afforded him certain privileges and certain rights that would not have been becoming of non-Roman citizens. Being a citizen of Rome carried a lot of legal and social advantages. Some of these included the right to vote, the right to own property, the right to sue in court and to be sued, the right to defend oneself in court, the right to have a legal trial with the presiding judge, and the right to appeal a decision if it was unfavorable or you didn't like it. No Roman citizen could be tortured or whipped or received the death penalty unless they were found guilty of treason. And this is where Paul had kind of, again, played that trump card as he was about to be scourged. And these were just a few of the special privileges and rights that were afforded to Roman citizens. And you might notice that many of these are strikingly similar to many of the rights that U.S. citizens enjoy. The founders of the United States and the authors of the Constitution and then the subsequent Bill of Rights modified many of our rights after Roman rights. They modeled them, I should say, after Roman rights, except the United States took things much further, offering freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and much more open rights to assemble and gather together in protest against the ruling authorities or the government. And so because of Paul's objection and his right to a trial, the Roman commander that was sort of taking care of Paul agrees to allow him to be brought before the Sanhedrin. And this was going to be a dramatic opportunity for Paul to finish the message that he had started the previous day at the Temple Mount. And when you look at Scripture, we read about the Sanhedrin several different times throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament. In fact, only in the New Testament. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish congress or parliament of sorts. And Paul was going to be given the opportunity to speak to this group. And most scholars believe that Paul was once a member of the Sanhedrin. There's a verse in Acts 26.10 where Paul is talking, and he talks about casting a vote. And only a member of the Sanhedrin in the capacity with which Paul was talking would have had the ability to cast that vote. And the Sanhedrin itself just means, the word means assembly, or those who set together, those who sit together. It consisted of 70 members. They were all Jews. They were the Jewish ruling council. And Jesus himself had stood before the Sanhedrin in, this, in his mockery of a trial. And now Paul finds himself standing before them as well. And he opens his message, as we just read, with a very interesting phrase. He says, men and brethren. Men and brethren. He was being very bold speaking to the council, setting himself on equal footing with them. The normal style to address them would have been rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Yet instead, Paul calls them his brethren, men and brethren. Now, it wasn't disrespect. Paul affirmed that he was a Jew and they were Jews. There was this inextricable brotherhood that knit them together with a common history, the same God that they worship, the same pains, the same trials, the same blood. And again, again, it was believed that Paul, having been once a member of the Sanhedrin, was likely speaking to some folks that he probably knew. And then Paul says, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. Probably 
Paul thought this was innocent in enough way to begin his preaching. He didn't mean, of course, that he was sinlessly perfect and that he had never felt that he had done anything wrong in his conscience. Rather, he meant that he had responded to his conscience when he had done wrong and he had attempted to set things right. You know, it's interesting when you think about these things that, and, and I think of it from the perspective of a teacher working at a school, when students get in trouble and you have to confront them and offer some kind of correction and some kind of guidance, there typically are two types of personalities that emerge when we're interacting with these students and they're confronted with something that they did wrong. The first group, one, they feel bad. There is a sense of guilt. There's a recognition that they have done something wrong. Their conscience sort of makes them feel guilty. They're apologetic. They seek forgiveness and they want to make things right. Obviously, that's what you hope to see because there's great hope for those people that see it that way. The second group of people, however, they're just mad that they got caught. They're just mad they got caught. There's no recognition of wrong. There's no desire to make things right. There's no desire to do better. Thankfully, Paul fell into the category of making things right. Through Christ, he had received the ultimate and final forgiveness. He had recognized he was wrong, that he was in rebellion against God. And we mentioned this last Sunday, but for the Christian, there is a great and liberating, though odd and even counterintuitive feeling when we realize we are wrong and we turn to God to be made right with him. Paul had come to this realization on the Damascus Road, and this is why he could stand before the Sanhedrin with a good conscience. Paul would later tell the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4.4 that he says, For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. He who judges me is the Lord. And he stood before Christ with a clear conscience, not because of anything that he had done, but because of the forgiveness that Jesus had brought into his life. So the high priest, at the same time, Ananias, has a scandalous response to this. Ananias commands those who were standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth, and Paul is indeed struck. He's slugged right in the mouth. So Paul's claim of good conscience offended the high priest. He thought the high priest did that someone accused of such crime starting these riots as he did, could never claim a, a clear conscience. And Ananias, again, was the high priest at this time, and he was not an honorable man. History shows us. This, of course, shows us this, and extra-biblical sources remind us of this as well. Ananias was thought to have attained this high priest position by bribery and by being a Roman sympathizer. And I should say that the high priest was as high as you could go kind of in the Jewish ruling class. It was a very essentially a prime minister of sort, but yet in a theocratic way, as that he had tremendous influence, and it was a very important position. But this particular high priest, Ananias, was known for his greed. Uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells of how Ananias stole tithes that belonged to the common priests. In other words, he would take money that ought to go to the common priests and keep it for himself amounting to be a very, very wealthy man. And so after Paul is slugged in the mouth by this action of Ananias, he has his own very punchy response to this cold and cowardly action by Ananias. Paul looks at him and he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
For you said and judge me according to the law, and yet you're commanding me to be struck contrary to it. Now, it's interesting because those around him couldn't believe what had been said. So they say, are you reviling God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You know, I have to say that part of me wants to save this comeback for a rainy day, tuck it somewhere in the back of my head, ready to use at the right moment and in the right situation. You know, I wish I knew how Paul had said these words. It would have been helpful to have heard his tone of voice. We may ask, was this an outburst of anger, or was it a calm, collected rebuke that carried a lot of weight to it? But whatever the tone, the rebuke was accurate, and it was justified. The man that commanded a defenseless man be punched in the face was a whitewashed wall, this veneer of purity covering over obvious corruption, obvious to Paul and obvious to all. These men of the council were supposed to be examples of biblical law, the law of Moses, and then to have Paul commanded to be struck was completely contradictory to both the letter and to the spirit of the wall. And in fact, Paul's words turned out to be very prophetic to Ananias. Ananias was not popular, but with all of his scheming and all of his bribes, and he ended up living as a hunted animal. Later, because of all of his pro-Roman politics and his corruption, Ananias would be brutally killed by Jewish nationalists. And those who stood by once again saying, "Did you do you dare revile God's high priest in this way? Now, it's interesting here. Paul knew that he was wrong in his outburst. No matter how he may have said it, rather in hot anger or calmly, he agreed that it was wrong to speak evil of the ruler of your people. But Paul excused himself, claiming that he didn't know that this man was Ananias, the high priest. It's still difficult to understand exactly what happens, but there's some theories here about why Paul said what he said. Well, Paul had been away from this council for around 20 years, out of Jerusalem for around 20 years, so it's definitely within the realm of possibility that Paul simply didn't recognize this man who gave the command to strike him as the high priest. However, some others think that he didn't know because Paul's eyesight was bad. In some of the letters, Paul sort of seems to, in Paul's letters, I should say, he seems to allude to having very poor eyesight, talking about big letters that he has to write with, and a couple of other things that he mentions, again, seem to sort of give us the impression that Paul's eyes were not very good. Others think, and I suppose that if I had to lock down a personal opinion that I had carrying away from this particular scripture, it would be this one, that Paul was being somewhat sarcastic with the idea that he didn't think that anyone who acted in such a manner could be the high, high priest. But in any case, whatever Paul's intentions was, the next or Paul's intentions were, the next move was brilliant. You see, Paul knew his audience. And he was already seeing that this was not going to be conducive to hearing the gospel because of the actions of the high priest and those who were present. So Paul sort of, if you will, unpins a grenade and throws it into the middle of this conversation of the Sanhedrin. And I'll explain why. He says, you know what? I am here because I have, I am concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. That is what I am being judged for. And this was a true claim. 
the center of Paul's gospel was a resurrected Jesus. He was being judged over the matter of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, this dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they became very divided. Now, you may say, well, why? These are Jewish people, they're religious people. Why would they be divided over something like the resurrection of the dead? Well, here's why. So for the Sadducees, they say there is no resurrection. Sadducees and Pharisees were two highly influential Jewish religious groups during this time. And we read of both, particularly the Pharisees, in the Gospels. And most of the time, they seem highly opposed to Jesus, the disciples, and his ministry. But there were a handful that were at least sympathetic to some of Jesus's ministry. Nicodemus from John chapter 3, which gives us the most famous verse in the entire Bible, probably the most famous single statement in all of history, John 3.16. We find it there, and that is given to Nicodemus by Jesus. So the Pharisees were likely to find some more common ground with Paul because they were very conservative and traditional. They were essentially the Bible believers in the Jewish world at that time, and they took the Bible very seriously, even though they did greatly err by adding a bunch of traditions of men. They certainly, though, believed in the resurrection. However, they had added many, many teachings and highly specific qualifications to the Old Testament law, I think numbering somewhere around 613 individual laws that they had identified in the Old Testament, and then they had added their own qualifications. For instance, they said that you could not spit on the Sabbath day, which for the Jews, which was a period of what we would largely call Saturday, the day of rest, you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because it would disturb the dirt and you would be guilty of plowing. You could not swat a fly on the Sabbath because you would be guilty of hunting. A woman could not look at her reflection in a mirror of sorts because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which would be considered doing work. But they also some created some loopholes to get around some particularly troublesome situations. So for instance, if your house was burning down on a Sabbath day, you could not carry clothes out of it because that would be considered work. However, you were allowed to put on extra layers of clothes as the house was burning down, and then you could leave your house without breaking the law because you were wearing these clothes rather than carrying them. So you can see it becomes very silly at times with all of these qualifications. The Sadducees were very liberal theologically, and they denied several major tenets of the Bible. You know, we don't have a lot of information about the Sadducees, other than what we learned from the Bible and just a couple of extra biblical sources. But Sadducees were usually very wealthy individuals. They held very high positions in government, and they held the majority of the 70 seats of the Sanhedrin court. But they were very much so Roman sympathizers. And because of being so wealthy and because of being Roman citizens or Roman sympathizers, they didn't relate to the common man very well. And most significantly, they denied the resurrection and the afterlife. The Pharisees firmly believed in the resurrection, as they ought to have, but the Sadducees denied the resurrection and they denied life after death. They believed that once a person died, the soul ceased to exist. That was it. Zippo, nothing, nada, you are gone. 
There's a story in the Gospels in which Jesus brilliantly confronts the Sadducees over this. It comes from Matthew 22. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. Then they go on to say, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second brother died. Then the third brother died. Then the fourth brother, the fifth brother, the sixth brother, all the way down to the seventh. They all died. And their question is, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? So they had given Jesus a riddle of sorts, saying this, and this really is a true thing, that a woman uh, or a, a man who had brothers, if he died and there was no offspring, if there were no children, then the brother was to marry the wife in hopes of producing offspring. Well, this was a large family, seven brothers. All seven of them married this woman throughout the course of time, and all seven of them die. I would be very concerned if this was a true story, and by the time that we get down to the fifth or sixth brother, not so sure it would be wise to marry this woman. There seems to be something very special going on, but regardless, that wasn't the Sadducees' point here. They were trying to catch Jesus, saying, look, what about the resurrection? Who's she going to be married to? Well, Jesus just says, you know, in the resurrection, they're, they neither marry nor they're given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. But then he says this, as for the resurrection of the dead, you have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, the Sadducees really kind of thought they had Jesus with sort of this trickery of a question. They held the first five books of the Old Testament in very high regard, the book of Moses. These were the most authoritative of uh, the, of the Bible to the Sadducees. So Jesus takes those books and he uses them to prove the afterlife. Because when God spoke to Moses in Exodus, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. No, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living. They were stunned and they leave Jesus alone. But here this riot starts, They're afraid, the Roman commander is afraid that they're going to pull Paul apart. Again, everywhere Paul goes, this riot seems to start. These Jewish people just cannot get along. And so the Sanhedrin hearing cannot continue. Finally, one of the Pharisees look, says, let's not fight against God. So they at least sort of seem to agree with Paul in part of his message. We're not given a lot of details, but Paul's strategy clearly worked. He had shared Jesus. He had pointed people to the resurrection. And in saying this, the Pharisees recommended a return to their advice of their great leader Gamaliel. And Paul leaves. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you also must testify in Rome. Paul will now go to Rome and be heard. You know, it looked like Paul might have been killed, but again, Jesus says, take courage. He was going now to Rome. Again, God was moving Paul toward a point. The gospel would go to Rome. Real quickly, a couple of takeaways as we draw this message to a close. The first thing that we notice Paul did here that is an example for us is that he engaged people with the truth. 
flowery speech, bait and switch tactics, flattery, all of this is not necessary with the gospel of Christ. Paul had the pure, unadulterated truth. You know, I think sometimes we feel sheepish about sharing what we believe because spiritual beliefs can be so marginalized and mocked by society and by people. Naturally, just like Paul experienced, we may think that speaking of God, Jesus, and the resurrection of the dead, that we may be swiftly ridiculed. And here's the reality, we might be. But that doesn't make our message any less true. While I certainly believe God wants us to be knowledgeable and he wants us to be mature in our faith, he also desires obedience. So we may pray for opportunities to testify for what we believe and know that God the Holy Spirit will use us to change lives. One of my favorite statements comes from Paul from the first chapter in Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to the Christian faith. The late Timothy Keller, who was a brilliant pastor, led a church in New York City for many years. He said this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Indeed, this is why the Sadducees and the Pharisees got into such a scuffle in front of Paul. If the resurrection were true, and Paul proclaimed it was, and as Christians we believe it is, then that changes everything. Jesus is raised from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he is the first and the promise for us that we will, too will join him in a bodily, physical resurrection. Not a spiritual resurrection where you and I float around like Casper, the friendly ghost in the clouds, but a bodily resurrection in which you and I will be made perfect. Our bodies will rise from the dead, we will be glorified, and will forever be with the Lord. Paul knew this. Paul believed this, Paul proclaimed this. If you don't have the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have anything. Thankfully, friends, we know it is true, and we can find joy, we can find peace, we can find hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not long after this hearing, we learn of a failed assassination attempt on Paul's life, and then he's carted off to meet a man by the name of Felix, the governor in Caesarea, who would hear Paul's case, and he would hear the gospel. Jesus was growing his church in unexpected ways, in ways that are difficult for some to see. But he was again moving Paul toward a point, and God was being glorified every step of the way. Pray with me if you would, please. Heavenly Father, as we all make our own little altars and places of prayer wherever we are, we recognize that you are holy and you are good. When you taught the disciples to pray, you taught them, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You were in heaven, the King of glory, and yet you were so close to us and love us so deeply that you are our heavenly Father. And you go on to say for us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. God, we ask that your kingdom come more and more in Rocky Top, Tennessee. 
Please call people to salvation. Please soften the hearts of the people. Tear down the barriers and break down the walls. And please use us to share the gospel of Christ so that people will know you and the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.